Good morning and welcome to episode eight and our final episode of Courtier's Corner. Uh, I'm Alex Spraggs, race director of the Marymount Bike Club, and with me as always is Paul Moffat, owner of Velocity.ca and cycling coach of the Marymount Bike Club. How are you doing this morning, Paul? I'm doing great, thanks, Alex. Enjoying uh, being inside on this miserable day. Yeah, we've had a couple of rainy ones in a row now. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's going to get nice. This weekend should be nice. So hopefully our riders are able to go out on nice, beautiful, sunny rides this weekend. Awesome. You guys got something uh, big planned? Uh, I think we're going to be doing the Richmond Loop, but don't quote me on it. We'll see. Oh, right on. Sprint to Iona, I hope. Oh, yeah. Definitely <laughs> some sprinting to Iona. Um, so this week on the podcast, we, uh, we don't have a guest, but we wanted to follow up on uh, a question that, that Jacqueline had last week that we didn't have the chance to get to because for, for time. Um, and it's really mainly focused around being comfortable on the bike, which is a main, which is a really important issue on biking, particularly long distances, is that small issues can turn into big ones. And, uh, so this is, this is a, we wanted to bring Paul back on to talk about how to evaluate these issues and, and work through a systematic checklist to make sure that you are uh, doing everything you need to do to make sure that you stay comfortable when you're riding. So, so Paul, yeah, can you, can you take us through that checklist and, and, and how we can apply it to our own riding? Absolutely. Um, and having a checklist is a really good thing because it just helps to narrow down the causes and and basically eliminate things that might be benign and not really contributing to what whatever you're experiencing uh comes from having um a standard operating procedure like they say if you are uh, if you go to the hospital your chances of survival are better if you go see a nurse because they have uh, a checklist that they go through from one all the way through to the bottom um and it just eliminates uh non-contributing factors and narrows down your, your field of view so you can really allocate what the issue is. So for us, we're going to look at uh, about four um, objective measures. One will be the mechanical component. I guess so the other thing is to talk about what uh, the issue was for Jacqueline because it will help us um, reveal how the checklist works. So Jacqueline was talking about having toe cramps on really big rides. So her 200K rides or anything where she's putting long hours in the saddle. Um, so we don't really know what that could be stemming from. There's a lot of things that we can look at. So if we just go through uh, several obvious factors, then uh, that will narrow down our field. So one would be mechanical. So like looking at the cleats and the shoes and things like that. So we'll, we'll go through the, each one of those uh, in, in a minute. The technical component. Um, so, like, what is your pedal stroke uh, looking like? What is uh, how's she riding? Is there is a particular way that she's riding in that's uh, overcoming even the mechanical factors that we're looking at before? Uh, what's the training schedule like? Is there something simple like uh, just over fatigue um, that can be a very easy one to fix? Um, or, or what are the days leading up to those big rides looking like so training is another one uh, and then physiological factors uh now that's looking at like fluid and hydration during the bike uh nutrition um or even just your pacing strategy you know things things like that will, will definitely contribute to um 
discomfort or injuries that you may be experiencing on your bike. And then sort of a fifth one uh, that would be physiological, but it's always good to um, tie into uh, on its own because it's such a big field is uh, prior injury history. So, um, and in fact, I would probably start with that one because it, it's the most obvious one where if you have those injuries uh, years ago or, or just not being experienced any um, present pain in those places, they may not affect any other parts of your life. Generally speaking, you're not affected by them at all. You're healed. Um, okay like for myself uh i have a old shoulder injury on my right side i dislocated it when i was younger and although i did all the rehab i needed to and it doesn't limit me doing bench presses push-ups or shoulder presses when i'm getting extremely fatigued that old injury is my weak link. It will come back. That side of my shoulder gets fatigued first. It gets tired, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it can be as simple as um, finding that one uh, and doing a little bit of work there, um, going back to your old uh, rehab strategy that you were using before, doing some stretches and exercises and, and, and getting those areas loaded up. Sometimes people never really tackle the injury at all. And that can be a good one if we're looking at that from a point of view of um, toe cramps. If you rolled your ankle um, walking, trail running or something like that, you would have probably adopted a compensation pattern to go about your daily business while you went through the healing process of that injury, right? So your body adopts a process where it tries to avoid using the ankle joint. So for example, uh, walking on your tiptoes. Now, you'd never want to do that for long periods of time because that's going to tighten up um, your calf muscles. So you could experience um, calf issues later on down the line if that was a long, uh, long-term strategy that you adopted to protect your ankle. And it would cause extra loading at the toe. So you may have changed how you uh, utilize your, your feet when you're walking or running um, by having a compensation technique like that for a long period of time. And that could be playing into uh, Jacqueline's um, pedaling technique there is she could still be adopting a, a technique like that if that was the side that she injured many years ago. Now, let's say that's not an issue. So then let's go through our checklist. Okay. So number one, the mechanical side of things. So very simply, um, cleats. How are your cleats positioned? So we talked to Jacqueline last week and she said that she put her cleats on herself, um, which is normal for most of us to do. Uh, now, based on her uh, body, she might have needed to tweak her uh, cleats slightly. So that's where having a physio fit you or just having an experienced bike fitter, have a look at how you're moving on the bike and maybe even testing your flexibility, looking at like how your uh, feet normally sit. Do they sway in or you have a slight pronation or supination on your feet? That might dictate um, how your cleats are going to go. We know how they're meant to be optimally, and we're all looking for optimal uh, performance and like best power transfer. But based on your physiology, based on how your body mechanics work, you may not be able to comfortably put your foot in those positions 
to get optimal power transfer. You may need to adjust your cleats to get the most out of them because you're forcing your body into a position it can't handle. So cleat position. It could be something as simple as moving them back. Maybe you've got the angles right, but you've got the cleat too far forward and you're pressing on your toes a bit too much. So bringing it back towards uh, the midfoot or closer to the heel, it doesn't actually go on the heel, but bringing that further back and closer to the ankle joint itself, there is some research to show that causes uh, good stability at the ankle. So cleat position is a really good one. The shoes themselves, if your feet are all bunched up, your, your toes are not gonna be spread out and flat on the shoe. So how narrow or wide are the front of your shoes? Um, I was just reading uh, some comments on a thread that uh, I, I was on talking about different shoe brands and how there's um, not necessarily uh, accuracy amongst the sizing across uh, different brands. So you might be a 42.5 euro on, on one brand and a 43.5 or a 43 in a different brand. So getting your feet fit properly is obviously a good one. So, and, and a lot of those issues can be solved by a bike fit as well. So having a good bike fit, they can look at your cleats, they can have a look at your shoes and things like that help you solve those problems. And then simply just have a look how you're seated on the bike. You know, it could be as simple as maybe your seat height is a little bit too high and you're having to lean forward a little bit more because um, the height of the seat is forcing you that way into a more comfortable position that's forward and hence you're kind of towing down and pushing on your on your toes a bit more than you should. So these are just stuff that come off the top of my head, right? So if you've uh, done the mechanical checklist and you cross all those off, there are not any of the issues. The next one is simply... Are you approaching those feet straight down? You're definitely putting a lot of force downwards. If you think about how the pedal works and how your foot sits on it, if you're pushing down, that pedal is pushing back on your toes. So the force is going right through there. So if I wanted to take some of the pressure out, um, I would probably focus on a sliding pattern where the force is distributed towards the heel and maybe a lifting pattern where I'm literally lifting the, the, the or um, visualizing my feet coming away from the pedal or away from the shoe. So I'm lifting force out of the toe and putting it and distributing it throughout the shoe rather than in just one direction. So we can talk about training and how to work your pedal stroke in that one. So just think for a second, you know, are you pedaling squares? Are you pedaling circles? Are you predominantly a pusher or do you have some kind of pulling technique in there? So if you, if you are a pusher, that could be an easy fix for you really quickly. So then training. Um, so you can see some of these checklists have a lot of crossover. So if we're talking about training and training pedal technique, um, we could combine that with your recovery days. So let's say we were talking about Jacqueline specifically, she's leading up to a big 200K ride and she knew that she was probably gonna cramp so the day before, ensuring that if she was going to go for a ride, it was a recovery ride. And last week, we set out those parameters, keeping your recovery rides under two hours and keeping your heart rate nice and low. Think under 135 beats per minute. That would work for most of us unless you actually go get your zone one heart rate tested in a lab, which isn't too difficult, but a little bit pricey, but it's a, definitely an option. So on that day, keeping everything nice and light and then trying to retrain your pedal stroke. So as long as you operate within those parameters, 
you could do some slow cadence work. So one of my favorite things to do, and I've put Alex through this a few times, send him out to Iona, uh, working on the flats, and then just practicing very, very slow pedal strokes. So actually using a very, very heavy gear that uh, you pull, um, that you pull in a way where your heart rate doesn't climb above what your target is. But by slowing down the pedal rate, he can feel every component of that pedal stroke. It's very easy to feel the downstroke when it's slow. It's very easy to pull a pull when it's coming back. And then you can tie that into muscle sensations. So if you're a pusher, that's your quads. If you're pulling, you're going to feel your hamstrings and your hip flexors. So you want to focus on that uh, pulling stroke and getting those other muscles activated. So doing that for 10 minutes at a time, a few times a week, will start to make that a natural part of your pedal stroke. Okay, so it's, it's got to be done over uh, a series of, of um, weeks for it to, to, to become natural. Uh, yeah, and then making sure that you're having recovery rides too. Like we talked about earlier in the injuries, if that's your weakest link, all your problems are solved, generally speaking, when you get super tired, it's going to be the issue that flares up um, irrespective of how well you're healed up from it. It's your weak link, right? So it's your body telling you, hey, man, you're pushing a little bit too much. So, you know, if you're jumping from your body, making sure that you're um, training up to these big, big tasks that you're putting on yourself and that if you are doing those big rides, that you're not just slamming them between... Um, other rides that you're doing. You may need to have a few days of preparation leading up to it. Okay, so those are our first three on our checklist, the mechanical, the technical, the training, and always thinking about the uh, injury side of it off to the side. And then the last one is our physiological side. So what, what your body's doing relative to what you're putting inside of it. So if we look at a hydration technique, so toe cramps, uh, if they're the type of cramps that are like uh, any other cramps, like through quads, hamstrings, they could easily be um, triggered by poor hydration strategies and carbohydrate intake. So talking to Jacqueline last week, she was saying that she would go for uh, well over 100K rides, which is several hours, and she would, wouldn't even finish two bottles of water. Um, in my own personal riding, if I'm going for a three-hour ride, I have to consume two full large bottles within three hours. So each hour to my, my um, hydration strategy to make sure that I'm fully hydrated for that ride. So if it was um, an eight hour ride, I'd have to divide that by one and a half and that would give me my ratio. So it's at least five bottles of, of fluid. Whether that has drink mix in it or, is, uh, or just has water, that's totally up to uh, the person. You'd need to experiment with that. Uh, but I would encourage you to at the very least have electrolytes in there because you're going to be sweating when you're on the bike for long periods of time if that's what's causing your issues. So we definitely identified that as one of uh, Jacqueline's issues um, was uh, poor hydration. So and then the next thing is carbohydrates. Your body only has so many stored high, uh, carbohydrates inside of it. And we call those your, your glycogen stores. Um, if you go for a massive ride, you're going to get through it within the first two, three hours. No problem. Okay, so you need to supplement that with, with food intake. And it needs to happen before you start to feel hungry, before you start to feel 
uh, thirsty, right? So for most of us, we can get at least 50 grams of carbohydrates, okay? That would be about one bar of um, uh, your favorite Cliff Bar or a Lara Bar or something to that effect and some, some kind of uh, carbohydrate intake through your drink mix as well, okay? What we know is that 60 to 90 is even better. So if you can increase that, and it is a trainable skill, and most of us out there who aren't used to that would uh, be shocked and be like, there's no way you can take that much food. You definitely can. You just need to practice it. Uh, on, a, on one of my endurance rides, I'll bring one bar and one gel per hour of riding. So the last 200K ride that I went on, that was eight bars, eight gels, and five bottles of fluid, all of which had a drink mix in it, which was equivalent of Powerade, Scratch, or Bourne, whatever, whatever it is that you're using. And it worked out to about 80 to 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour. Because I followed that strategy, I did not uh, experience any discomfort, even in the eighth hour of our ride, and we we're averaging 30 kilometers an hour at that point. So it is um, definitely a trainable skill, and it's a really useful one to have. Then the last thing to look at when you're looking at those intakes is what's your pacing strategy, both from a riding standpoint, like are you riding within your ability? If you're going for an eight hour ride and you're riding close to your FTP, you are going to find a cracking point. If you're using only 50 to 60% of your FTP, you probably go all day at that pace. While you're doing that, what's your fluid and, um, nutrition intake pacing strategy are you drinking every right so maybe it's not an entire bar every 20 minutes maybe it's about a third of a bar every 20 minutes and then following up with the with your fluid intake so it just depends how much food you're taking with you what your uh, fueling strategy is going to be so going through that checklist with the chaplain last week we were basically able to identify two main components for her to work on right away we talked about cleat position she Put them on herself so we're going to have that looked at and, and moved and then the other one that stood out the most us, which was uh, a simple one was fluid uh, intake so trying to get in at least four bottles on a big ride for her um, six if it was going to be a 200k ride possibly even more than that so all we're looking for using our checklist is the low-hanging fruit what are the ones that come out the most identify those tackle them and if your issues go away then you probably hit the nail on the head if they didn't at least you can scratch them off your list and move on to the next thing that stands out to you so yeah so that's our uh, checklist there um is there anything i missed there alex or anything you want to contribute no that sounds uh that sounds great i, I think that you know i uh i've experienced a lot of these myself i know that um i had an ankle injury from when i was a kid and it didn't actually manifest itself now later in life. It hasn't manifested itself in my ankle, but instead it's manifested itself in my right knee because I've been compensating for a, essentially a stiffer ankle by putting more flex into my knee, which has given me some knee issues. So uh, that, that part I, is something I've worked on. And uh, nutrition is, is, has always been a, uh, for me, has been something that I've always had to, keep on top of it didn't come naturally and it's but um it's been very helpful you no know, like like focusing on that to make sure i feel good for longer rides and keep my power up through long rides and 
uh, yeah, don't get any issues with that. So it's all very helpful. And, and one other um, thing for comfort, which I th we, we can discuss and which I found very helpful is uh, tire pressures, um, you know, particularly for long rides. Uh, you know, we, it's funny, a lot of us have um, holdovers of what tire pressures may have thought to have ideally been um, in the 90s when everyone was riding on 23 mil tires and, and uh, steel or, or steel bikes. So, but that's changed a lot. And um, can you talk a bit about uh, how tire pressures can be used to enhance your comfort on the bike and in fact make you a little faster? Absolutely. Um, super fascinating topic. Um, first of all, there's a great resource, a brand called Silka, S-I-L-C-A. They make a lot of great tools, including uh, track pumps. Um, they have a tire pressure chart, which is actually very, very useful and, and fairly accurate. Now, there's always going to be a little bit of discrepancy because tire pressure there isn't a black and white system. It also comes down to preference, right? So some people prefer a harder riding tire, things like that. It's not perfect, but it's the best one that I've seen out there. It takes into account several factors, and that's what we need to look at again, <laughs> going back to a checklist style. So, you know, what is the weight of the rider? So they'll ask you what, how, how much you weigh. That's really important because uh, you and I might have exactly the same bike, exactly the same tire, same width. Uh, we bought them fresh at the same time because we're best buds. We're racing the same team and we want to have the same same stuff and look cool and pro. But um, I could be five kilograms lighter than you. And that means that my tire pressure run at the same pressure as yours would be far too hard for, for me to get uh, the best out of those tires. So entering in your, your body weight is really important. Then what type of tires do you have? Clincher tires where you have tubes included that will probably require more pressure, or not probably, it should require more pressure for the same feel as a tubeless tire. So tubeless is like the latest, well, latest in road biking. It's been around for a long time in uh, mountain biking and other sports, but uh, it is kind of a new thing in the last five years or so. It's super useful, removes the tube, allows you to run south. Second, Alex, are we still good? <laughs> okay, getting back to tubeless, sorry, we cut out there for a second. Um, yeah, so removing the, the tube itself has created a lot of really cool dynamics. You can run a lot lower pressures because now there's simply more air between the rim and the tire itself. It eliminates a lot of um, punctures that would be caused by pinch flat. So when you go through a pothole, um, so those are unique. Um, and the, the main thing with the uh, tubeless tires is, for me anyway, is it improves the handling and the comfort of your ride. So without losing any speed, I can run those tires a lot softer than a traditional clincher and uh, tube setup, which means that, um, now it sounds counterintuitive that running your tires softer, but what we found is that it, it, it deflects the road much, much better. So, yeah, so we talked about uh, type of tires, the uh, rider weight, and then your tire width as well is really important. So the wider your tire gets, the softer you run it, okay? So let, let's look at what's 
typically run on uh, road bikes these days. So if you're fortunate enough to have a more uh, recent road bike and it's run with a tubeless setup, you're probably riding a 25 millimeter or a 28 millimeter tire. I really like 28 and it doesn't sound that difference, different, but a 25 and a 28 millimeter tire are significantly different where you can run them about 10 PSI different, which is quite a bit. So right now, I'm running 28 millimeter Continental GP 5000s on my uh, road bike. And I am about 80 kilograms. And I have about 60, if I want to run them fast and a little bit hard, I run them with about 65 PSI in the front and 68 at the back. If I'm doing a longer ride, I'll probably run the back closer to 60 on the dot and the front I'll run about 56 to 58 PSI. Now, I always run my back a little bit heavier because that's where all my weight is. Right? I'm really sitting in the saddle, most of my weight's on top of that. Having, having the front wheel run a little bit softer will really increase the comfort a lot because that's where the vibration is coming directly into your hands, into your shoulders, and into your neck. It's where you're gonna feel it uh, the most. So don't run your front tires too hard. Um, an easy way to know whether your tires are being run too hard is if you feel like you're getting bounced all the time and you really feel the road vibration. So you want to find that sweet spot. And again, it comes down to preference. Initially, when you first go to riding either tubeless or riding your clincher tires a little bit softer, you're going to think that you're having a flat tire. <laughs> There's definitely a squish factor to it, but that's a good thing. So what we learned from, so going back to what you said in, in the 90s when everyone was running 23 millimeter tires and you ran the pressure to the maximum limit that the manufacturer wrote on the sidewall, which is usually like 120 to 130 PSI. Now, to be honest with you, that has, hasn't changed uh, that recently. Six years ago, I was doing the Fondo and I put 130 PSI in a 23 millimeter Schwalbe Pro 1. Um, that is ridiculously hard because then we thought that harder tires prevented punctures and they rolled faster. But what we know now is that a hard tire in the right circumstance, a thin hard tire is faster when it's perfectly, perfectly round, like a manicured track. Okay. Not even Burnaby track is that, um, Perfect. I would run my tires a little softer at that track even. Um, but if the, if, the, if the rolling surface that you're on is absolutely perfect, absolutely flat, and there's no bumps or deteriorations in it at all, then yes, that old school mentality is correct. But what we know now, if you look at how tarmac is made, there's, it's made with tiny little stones and it's, it's porous. It's got little holes all over it. They might be minute. But what happens is it deflects the tire. Essentially, you're creating little bounces in the tire as you can go. So what we know about really hard tires is actually getting bounced off the road more. So when you're putting down the power, it's getting lost through bouncing. So by deflecting the tire a little bit and deflating it, um, oh, sorry, by deflating the tire a little bit, it's sinking into the road and you're getting a better grip when you're pedaling. So it's essentially pulling you through the road much better and it's there's less loss of your own power when, when you run your tires quite a bit softer. Um, there is a limit to how soft you can ride it. And I would say 
you know you're starting to run them too soft when you notice two things. One, pedaling is inherently a bouncy activity, okay? But running your tires just uh, hard enough that you feel the resistance, you don't feel that bounce. But if you run them too soft, you can feel a, a significant bounce. And that's where you get that sensation of, oh, my tires are flat. So when you get to that point where you actually feel a significant deflection and you're going up and down, they might be too soft. And at that point, your tires are probably gonna be slowing you down. The second thing you'll notice is that when you're cornering, it feels like if you're cornering to the left, it feels like it wants to pull you to the right because you essentially want to stay on the path that they're on. So when they're running too soft, your bike wants to go one way and your tires want to go the other way. And we want them to move together, obviously. So there is a bit of a sweet spot there for sure. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you can think of that we can um, chat about that point, Alex? I've been yabbering on for minutes at a time yet. No, that's, that's great. I, um, yeah, in, in terms of my, uh, my practice, yeah, when I'm on, when I'm trying to be super fast, I will run what the Silka recommendations are. <clears throat> and I'll put a link to the Silka page in the, in, the, in the notes to this episode so people have it in short access. But when I go out on longer rides, I'll, I'll drop that about four or five PSI for both the front and rear wheel just because it's more comfortable and, and, you know, your tires are the main – uh, for a rigid road bike, your tires are the main source of suspension in your in your in your bike. So, you you can really tweak that suspension with the with the tire pressure. And uh, yeah, I only run hard tires at the track. And even then, like you said, the burn boot track isn't that smooth. So it's not super super hard, but it's a lot harder than it would be for my road bike. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, like the, the pavement out here is never never ideal. So uh, you always want to have it have have some suspension component in your bike so that you're not bouncing up and down and uh yeah i, I read something about how it's hard the one way to imagine it is it, it is all of that shaking all of that vibration you know that that causes you know all of this energy loss into your body essentially so the pedal which you're trying to turn into forward momentum when the bike is shaking gets lost as friction and uh and, and energy loss in your own body. So that vibration that you're feeling, which will actually, one of the other things you'll notice if you start running tires softer than usual, is you'll feel like you're going slower. It's, just, it's a sensation of going slower because you're feeling smoother. Whereas with really hard tires when you're vibrating, you feel like you're going fast because you can feel every like bump in the road. So that is one thing to kind of keep in mind. A lot of people that's another reason why people were running really hard tires is because it felt faster. There was this real feeling of speed, but it wasn't actually borne out by the actual speed of the bike, which is, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting topic, right? We could argue back and forth all day. Um, but there's, there's uh, real world testing and there's lab testing. And, and most of the research initially was done in the lab. So yeah, in, in a lab where you have a perfectly smooth drum. So they used to test tires on a steel drum with no, um, with, with no, uh, what, what do you call it? Um, no, no bumps or anything on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no deterioration on that whatsoever and just go around in a circle forever. So it's perfect testing conditions for a smooth, hard tire, right? Um, but like you said, when we go outside and there's like inherently like, we're lucky if we find like a road that's like perfectly new tire sealed and it's like, like a new tire sealed road, there's nothing like it. I think we can all agree on that. 
it feels super fast, right? But we don't have that everywhere we ride. So, and you are getting deflected. So like you said, some of the fatigue that you're experiencing is not just the energy going into your body from the road and that force is getting translated vertically instead of horizontally. That's what we want our force to get translated is moving forward. But if it's getting you bounced up and down, your energy is actually going into resisting that bounce, pushing back on the bike, trying to keep the bike on the ground essentially. So if you're doing that for like five, six hours at a time on a, on a big 100, 150K ride, yeah, man, that's, that's fatiguing, right? So do yourself a favor, lower your tires a little bit. And that kind of ties into your comment about that sensation of slowing down. It's not that you're slowing down. It means that you're gripping the road. So if you're gripping the road and you're in contact with the road more of the time, now your force is getting translated horizontally instead of vertically. And that's the most important thing when we're thinking about. Another thing we didn't really talk about yet is adventure bikes and gravel bikes. We only looked at the roadside. And we're looking at cyclocross or uh, gravel bikes. We're running tires now that are, right now, the industry standard is if your bike doesn't clear more than 40 millimeter tires, it's not a gravel bike. If it's less than that, it's basically either a very specific cyclocross bike or it's a road bike. We've got road bikes coming out, which is crazy to me, that can clear 35 and even 38 millimeter tires. It's insane. But it's very cool too. But anyway, so looking at the gravel side of things, if you're running a tire that's more than 40 millimeters and some of my size, 80 kilograms, which I'm not considered a light rider by my peers, um, I can ride those tires at 40 PSI. And I ride them at 40 PSI when I'm riding to the trails from my house. In other words, I'm incorporating some road riding. If it was a rough trail, like Fisherman's, and, uh, and it was a little bit wet, I'd probably run, and I have run like 32 in the front and 34 at the back. That's extremely light, but because it's such a massively wide tire, 32 PSI is still a lot of volume of air, but I want that squish to help me roll over that super bouncy terrain. Again, it's about translating the, the forces forwards instead of up and down. So yeah, yeah massive tires, low pressures. It's, it's a crazy experience, but that's where your suspension comes from, right? Yeah. That's a big thing in the... Uh, Gravel biking. It's like, do you build the suspension into the bike itself or you just accommodate for bigger tire clearances and let people choose to run really wide mountain bike tires and ride them super soft? Yeah. And that seems to work even better than trying to have goofy um, front suspension on a road bike. So, Yeah, and on, on my cyclocross bike, I don't even know what the, the PSI is. I do, a, I do a thumb test. So I'll take my thumb, I'll put it on the tire, and then with all my body weight, I'll push down. And I just need to make sure I have a, enough buffer to keep the tire from touching the rim so I don't get pinch flats or, or that, that snake bite. But yeah. otherwise, I run it as soft as I possibly can without getting uh, the, the rim to hit. Because that's, you know, for cyclocross, you're talking about roots and really rugged terrain. So having it as soft as possible is critical. Uh, I, like, I like that method, too, because it incorporates your body weight. So it's almost like auto-scaling, you know what I mean? If you've got your full body weight on top of that tire... Um, versus me, we're going to run two different pressures, but we're still using the same method and looking for the same result with that thumb test. So that's cool. I like that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thank you for thank you so much, and thank you so much for doing these podcasts. Uh, this is the last one, so uh, I uh, I'm, I'm going to miss these in the future. But thank you so much for doing this in this time of quarantine. But 
next Wednesday, we're going to be out there on the road. So I'm looking forward to seeing you out on the road. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to seeing everybody. And who knows, maybe there'll be more podcasts over the winter when we're back inside again. But for maybe now, maybe this isn't the end. Maybe this is the, the start of a, of a new thing. Yeah, we're just giving you guys time to accrue new questions. So. <laughs> All awesome. right. Take care. Take care, Paul. And I'll, I'll see you on Wednesday. You too. See you then.